You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is Raul Bali. He is the WABA political, WABE political reporter, and he's also the co-host of the Georgia Votes 2022 podcast, and we appreciate you being with us today. Welcome. Welcome back from vacation. You didn't miss anything. No, I tell you nothing. That's right. <laughs> Everything happened. Uh, I tell you, it was funny because I did make the comment that uh, I was mad at everybody. And you sent me a nice <laughs> message saying, you just got back from vacation. What are you doing being mad at everybody? But what I'm mad about is this, this idea that only one side or the other politicizes issues. I'm mad at Congress in general because... Most of the problems we're dealing with today, whether it's uh, Roe v. Wade, whether it's it's voting, anything, it, there were decisions that happened in the courts that the Congress was supposed to legislate, but they don't because they'd rather have the issue. And I think the, the important thing is because of all of that, I know this is more 50,000 feet type stuff, we're now, I believe, and talking to you know, kind of people who are looking down the road, we're looking at a sea change on how things are done in this country. And what I mean by that is with Dobbs, who saw abortion sent back to the states, I fully believe that what we're probably going to see are other issues that that could have been dealt on the federal level being sent back to the states. You could see environmental issues sent back to the states. You could see voting rights issues sent back to the states. You can see a lot of things start, you know, it, obviously we've heard the conversation about same-sex marriage being sent back to the states. So I, I think what, what, you're, what you're talking about, to me, even more is it, we're going to have a change. And in, in, in our, our local elections, whether they for state lawmaker, governor, district attorney, Georgia Supreme Court are suddenly going to become so much more important. So in that vein, before we get on to the other issues we're going to talk about, there was a decision, mm-hmm. decision that came out just before I left on vacation related to the Public Service Commission. Could you yeah. give people just an explanation? Because that's one of those races people don't pay much attention to anyway, but it was mm-hmm. extremely confusing this time. I think that a lot of the confusion is because there are two different cases dealing with two different issues. Here, here's the main issue. The Georgia Public Service Commission, for, for I know most of your audience knows, but for those who don't, it's the regulator of our major utilities in the state of Georgia. Georgia Power, national, natural gas, landlines, for those of us who, who still use landlines. So th- that's the regulator. that They have their five seats on the Georgia Public Service Commission. Hall County represented uh, by Bubba, Bubba, not represented, but there are five different districts. And if you are a candidate, you have to be from that district but every voter in georgia gets to vote on it and so what the courts are saying is wait is that fair to minority voters and specifically black voters because remember what happens congressionally okay you have minority majority districts black majority districts that are produced out of the 14 congressional districts 
the judge is basically saying, should that be the case with the Georgia Public Service Commission? You know, instead of having five statewide bodies, you elect the Public Service Commission by district. Now, what the, the you know, these things were being fought out in court. And then Brad Raffensperger had to come to the decision of, do you keep fighting over the two races that are supposed to happen this fall, Tim Eccles and Fitz Johnson, or do you just let the battle go and let the ballots be printed? Because that was the concern. Do you keep fighting this out? Because people have been hearing it's on the ballot, off the ballot, on the ballot, off the ballot. The secretary came to the decision of, I can't keep fighting this because you can't have the confusion for voters in the fall. So the two public service commission races will not be on the ballot. There's a possibility next year is supposed to be our off year. We're not going to have an off year. We may have some public service commission races next year. So what happens to, say, Tim Eccles, whose term is ending, and then Fitz Johnson was running to fill a seat? My understanding is they just continue. Okay. They, they, will, they will just continue in office. Um, but I think the quirky thing there is if for some odd reason there's a 3-2 vote um, on some sort of issue, the question is will that, will that lead to lawsuits? You know, if it's a 5-0 vote, it'll be fine. But my understanding, and, and from, from talking both to the secretary's office and the PSC's office, their understanding is they'll just remain in office, continue in office until these issues are solved, probably sometime next year. Okay, well, that's clear as mud, right? It's yep. it's still very confusing to the average voter because this is a race that does affect them in their day-to-day lives, but it's, quote, down, down ballot, and so a lot of people don't pay attention to it. Now, last week we did have Lindsey Graham uh, in the news related to the special grand jury in Fulton County. Bring us up to date on that. So we're right now we're in the lawyer phase, the the two sides. Uh, I think there's a deadline today for the Fulton County's DA's office to file some paperwork. Graham's lawyers will have later this week. But here's what it comes down to. The special grand jury uh, in Fulton County that's looking into election interference from 2020 wants to talk to Lindsey Graham. And it is very clear that they, and specifically prosecutors, want to hear about, A, the phone call Senator Graham made to Secretary of State Raffensperger and his staff, specifically about mail-in absentee ballots, taking a second look at them, possibly throwing some of them out, and was there coordination between the senator uh, and the then-Trump White House in the days after the 2020 election. Lindsey Graham is saying, look, I was doing this as a senator, as my legislative responsibilities, and therefore, because I was doing this as a senator, under my under doing my job, I am protected. I am immune from having to be answered asked these questions. Prosecutors are pushing back, saying, "Look, this doesn't fall under your responsibilities. This this is you know you you were your conduct was not related to your job as a senator. So you should come down and talk to the talk to uh, the grand jury. That's the basic arguments that are happening with the two sides, and that's what they're arguing in court. My expectation is sometime next month. We're all going to be back in federal court hearing another round of arguments, and um, most likely because of what we've seen with others, in the end, people have to testify. Uh, that's really what both the Fulton County Judge Robin McBurney has been doing, and that's what the federal judges are saying. Yes, questions can be limited. They can be limited in scope. They can be focused. But in the end, most people are having to testify. So ultimately, what do you think is going to come out of this special grand jury? 
I mean, I think, look, first of all, I think an important thing I keep reminding people, this grand jury, the one that's meeting right now, cannot indict, okay? I, I always want to remind people of that. This grand jury will produce a report that will be given to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and then she has to make a decision whether she's going to present it in front of a regular grand jury and go for charges. The question is, who is she going to go after? Is she going to go after the former president? Is she going to go after Rudy Giuliani or some of the other attorneys? Because now she's starting to call some of those attorneys to appear before the grand jury. Will she go after the 16 alternate Republican electors who met at the state capitol during the Electoral College, you know, including Burt Jones and David Schaefer? Will she go after them? I mean, that's the question is, is who is she going to go after in the end? So we'll follow this closely. Now, you've spent some time in a couple of suburban districts. And, mm-hmm. of course, all the talk is always about suburban women, suburban districts, the the kind of, like, squishy Republicans that are in those districts that kind of go back and forth. I think we still are a state that leans right, Raul. I, I really do. But we don't know what these suburban districts are going to do. What have you observed just being on the ground? I... Thanks for mentioning. I've decided because we've all been covering the governor and the Senate, governor and the Senate, and I decided let's kind of slide away. And, and I so I went to the attorney general's race and, and went to a couple events there. I went to a couple of uh, state house races um, in the uh, kind of that Gwinnett, North Fulton area, districts forty eight and fifty. And up to this point, I kept saying to myself, "There's, there's, there, there can only be a handful." of independent voters. I mean, how many voters are really trying to choose between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams and, and Brian and, and, and Raphael Warnock and, and Herschel Walker and those candidates, all four Republican and Democrat in those two races, absolutely tell me there are a lot more independent voters than, than people realize. And, and they are focusing on kind of the same issues. When you, when you went to the democratic events, you definitely are hearing about, about gun control and abortion. And when you go to the Republican events, you're definitely hearing about crime and the economy. So the, the issues kind of sound the same as the top of the ballot, but they believe that there are a lot more independent voters. They're aiming for those. So I went to an event for Republican Scott Hilton, and the focus of that event was talking about crime and, and talking about the courts, and that was the focus uh, of, of that event. I went to an event for Democrat Mary Robichaux. She brought the executive director, the national executive director of Moms Demands Action, Shannon Watts, definitely talking about guns. They, they all believe that there are independent voters that they can swing on these issues, and, and that's what they're going for. So did you have any sense that these were people that weren't sure if they were going to vote, were going to vote, but just didn't know how they were going to vote? Because I do think that there's there are people that show up at these events, but then ultimately don't vote because they don't usually vote. Um, in the case of these events that I went to, these are these were hardcore supporters. These are people that you're, they're going to vote. OK, I am still out there definitely trying to track down these independent voters who are trying to decide. That's something I'm definitely, but at these events, whether it was the Robichaux event or, or the Hilton event, they were dead. I mean, these are the people who they're showing up, they're voting, they're going to be voting for their person. I am definitely still trying to track down 
these voters who are trying to make a decision, and, and especially the voters who are trying to make a decision whether they're going to vote or not in the first place, uh, because, you know, there's still, you know, at least in my life, you know, with, with the families that we do play dates with, there are so many people who are just now tuning in. You know, they're not like you and me where we're dialed in all the time. There are people who are just now dialing into these races who are now realizing, oh, well, we're a couple of months away from election time. They're seeing more stories in the media. So they're just now dialing in and, and trying to decide what to do. So one final question. What is your sense about the uh, Senator Warnock, Herschel Walker race? Because I'm looking at the Real Clear Politics average. It's still kind of in the margin of error. It looks like Senator Warnock might be pulling away a little bit. I mean, the last the average is now 4.4%, which is a little bit out of the margin of error. But what is your sense about that race? When I dig into the numbers, I, I less look at those numbers, and I like looking at the numbers when it comes to, and I think I've mentioned this on your show before, the numbers within parties or within the same group of voters. And here's what I mean. Um, I think it was the, not the signal poll, um, the Quiniac poll. Brian Kemp got nine, and I'm doing these numbers off the top of my head. Brian Kemp got 96% of Republicans. Those same Republicans, Herschel Walker got 93. You know, independent voters, Brian Kemp got um, I think 38%, Herschel Walker got 29% of those same independent voters. And again, I'm doing that off the top of my head. You know, I apologize if I got the numbers wrong. But what you're seeing is Kemp is getting kind of that top-line number, and, and Herschel Walker is losing little percentages here and there. The question is, is that going to be the margin of victory? You know, is there – I wasn't the first person to say that it was, it was my colleague, Sam Gringlass, um, at WAB, who, who started pointing out that there could be these Kemp-Warnock voters, whether they vote Kemp-Warnock or they vote for Kemp and then maybe skip the Senate race. So that's, that's seemingly what's happening with the numbers out there. When you talk to Republican voters, you, you have the Republican voters who they're all in on Herschel um, or, you know, they're not all all in, but look, I'm a Republican voter and I'm voting, voting for Herschel. And then the, it's a very small handful of like, I don't know what I'm going to do to the Senate race. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm, I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp. Um, you know, I'll probably and in most cases, like I'm probably going to vote for Herschel or I may skip it. But again, that's a very, very small number. Yeah, I think the better Brian Kemp does, I think better, Brian Kemp will do substantially better than Herschel Walker. And the better Brian Kemp does, the more likely it is the Herschel Walker can beat Raphael Warnock. I, that's if you go based on on the theory I just presented, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to watch, and we'll see what happens with all of that. Um, Raul Bali, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Always good to talk to you. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM five fifty and FM one hundred two point nine WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and Alan Sanders is joining me right now. He's a radio talk show host in Northwest Georgia. And, Alan, look, it's it's he wants Trump to be on the ballot, and I think Republicans should want the economy, inflation, all of that to be on the ballot. Because if you ask the question, are you better off uh, today or three years ago, the question, even with COVID, is a pretty easy one to answer. Oh, yeah, no doubt. In fact, one of the things I made a comment of even late last night 
it's not so much what they was said during last night's just angry, bitter, ominous speech that the president gave. It's everything he chose not to address. Didn't address back-to-back GDP shrinkage. No matter how you want to redefine it to try to give yourselves pats on the back, we have a slow economy. We have inflation at 40-year highs. We have an open border. We have fentanyl problems. He addressed none of that. So those are the issues people wanted to see. Well, where are we going? And I think that's the indication where the GOP needs to be focused on for the next two months. Look at all the things that are that are wrong with the country and all the president knew how to do was alienate at least 74 million Americans saying, if you're not with me, then you're an enemy of democracy. It's the Martha Zoller Show, and it's always great to talk to Alan. And I want to talk just about the optics for a minute. Okay, so President Biden wanted to be in front of Independence Hall, okay? But he chose to do it at dusk where it was going to get dark. So you missed the whole point of being in front of Independence Hall. You could sort of see it when he walks out. But then, as obviously, as he's making the speech, it's getting dark. You've got this. I mean, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan, so the whole red and black vibe behind him was, <laughs> was you know, fantastic. But it, the vibe was, who knows where he was? Once it got dark, it could have been Independence Hall. It could have been anywhere. Well, and I mentioned this. The first thing I tweeted last night, I, much like all of us do in, in this business, we try to uh, engage social media wise with events like this. And so I was real time tweeting. And my first comment was who allowed the framing of these shots? Because we knew it was going to be on the president. And the only color we're going to see is a deep blood red on brick with outlines of military personnel. It looked like something out of a dystopian, you know, B for Vendetta or some other movie where we had this, this, these color schemes that were ominous, dark, and brooding. There was nothing uplifting or enlightening about any of it. Well, and, and really, red is supposedly the color for Republicans, right? So I don't know. I mean, you'd think he would have had the bright blue behind him if he's trying to make right. that message. Because the real problem here, Alan, is that you've seen all the polling. Democrats are not motivated to get out to vote. And nope. all this was was something to give them some red meat so maybe they'll get out and vote. That's exactly right. Uh, it was built as an address to the nation. What this really was was a taxpayer-funded campaign speech. It was the president trying to rally Democrats saying, look what we're up against. You need to get to the polls because uh, if you vote for me and you vote for fellow Democrats, it's a vote for freedom and liberty and democracy. And if you don't vote for me, you're voting for tyranny and violence and people who don't support law enforcement. I'm like, it's a complete gaslighting of the country, rewriting history before our very eyes. So, and it is ironic that the broadcast networks did not carry this speech. They passed on the opportunity to have this speech. I don't know if they thought it was going to hurt him more than help him, but they passed on it. And then with all due respect to Kevin McCarthy, you know, he was he's got to get some more energy. I know he did this sort of prequel to the speech, but he has got to be a little peppier. I'm sorry for a guy that rides a bicycle every day. He's kind of low key. No, he well, I've got my own opinions about the leadership that come November. If uh, there's a, a changeover of the majority in the House and maybe the Senate. Uh, there needs to be, like you said, just uh, people who've got not only some vim and vigor, but actually believe the things they're saying. They're not just talking, but they're actually walking the walk. 
Um, the thing that I thought interesting, just to your comment about the networks not carrying it, that's actually, I think, going to be even worse for the administration because all people are seeing today are the memes and the and the snapshots and the pictures of an angry old man squinting, fists raised, with red and black and ominous colors behind him. That's all people are going to think happened last night. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. Now, he has had a few good weeks. Now, we know that Republicans don't poll as well in the summertime. So in June, we had a much bigger lead, it looks like, on the generic ballot than we do now. But I'm still not worried about that because the issues are more in our favor. And, you know, I have sort of a barometer at home with one of my daughters who uh, is a little more liberal than I am. And she's voting Republican this time because her... Her, you know, her economic situation has been impacted by what's happened over the last couple of years. So I think there's a lot of people like that out there. And I think Democrats are worried about that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, We have to remember, too, I think over the last decade or so, Republicans in general or people thinking about voting Republican tend to shy away from pollsters anyway. That's what makes it so difficult for the pollsters who are trying to get to the the, where the, the country is. So many don't care on the left on the right they're not going to answer they don't want to talk so it's tough to gauge and you're right as we head back to school republicans in general were focused on the kids on back to school on getting the routine underway maybe one last vacation planning maybe something over labor day weekend they're not talking to pollsters so whatever little blip or bump it's irrelevant until we get closer to November. Well, and here's the other thing. And, you know, everybody thought that the whole Roe v. Wade overturn was really going to motivate Democrat voters. And what they've seen is kind of what I expected. Single women um, probably are going to vote Democrat, but they're probably going to vote Democrat anyway. Okay. But married women with children are more concerned about their children that they have and school and the economy then they might be pro-choice, they might be a soft pro-life, but that's not going to be the issue that motivates them. It's schools, the economy, and how their children are doing. Absolutely. And in fact, if you remember when the Dobbs decision came down a week or so after, there was only a slight blip in the positive for Democrats on that issue, and then it immediately the following week went back to where it's always been. You know if you're a single voter issue, if you're a single topic issue, if you were already pro-choice, nothing was going to change your mind. If you were pro-life, nothing was going to change your mind. So this really wasn't going to be the big win that I think a lot of Democrat strategists thought it was. No, I don't think so, too. But I don't know how anybody thought it was a good idea. He's not a good speech maker. He's not someone that delivers a speech well. They have some polling that I've seen that says this this angry Joe Biden is doing a little bit better with Democrats than 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 Grandpa Joe is, but it's still not something that is getting people to the polls. And let's just remember, Joe Biden's not on the ballot, neither is Donald Trump. We need to make sure that the economy's on the ballot and the policies that got us there are on the ballot. And that's what's I, happened with Congress. I totally agree. Let me, uh, just for something to think about and for the audience to think about, you heard constantly for the last few days, it dropped with Biden calling parts of the MAGA crowd semi-fascist and then well is this going to get walked back Corrine Jean-Pierre press secretary says no 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 he's being honest there are there's a group of people who don't want to go with the majority now we're getting a redefinition of what it means to be an extremist in this country and that is to be opposed quote to Corrine to the majority of where the country is well we're a republic and a republic 
honors the fact that, yes, you have a majority, but not ignoring the minority. And that's important to remember. You've got a president and a press secretary saying you should go along with the majority regardless of your personal feelings, because if you're not with us, you're an enemy. Well, guess what? The majority of the country doesn't want to see Joe Biden run again. Are we suddenly going to see extremists in the Democrat Party saying he should run again based on that criteria? So this, they've got a messaging problem, and they want to very much try to say, if you're not voting Democrat, you are an enemy to democracy. And that in and of itself should be a, something scary for all of us to hear. Well, you hit the nail on the head there. And, that, and I actually tweeted about this last night where... Um, you know, you have we're a republic, which means not only do we have major, uh, you know, majorities win elections, but we also protect the rights of the individuals. It's similar to what mm-hmm. you're saying. And in fact, their position on on abortion is is that, you know, that that right to privacy infringes on the individual's right to do certain things so they're that you're right they're in conflict as far yep. as what they're saying versus what they want you to say. Right. Basically, what it is, it's it's at any given moment, whatever they say at this moment, that's the position we should have. So if it's you should support the minority position today, well, then that's the position you should have. But if it's the majority tomorrow, well, that's the position you should have. They're not consistent. They don't know where they are. Their domestic policy is obviously one failure after another. Their foreign policy started with a debacle with the we're just on the back of the anniversary of the retreat from Afghanistan. This president has nothing positive to run on, so all he's got is paint the 74 million Americans who supported the policies, not necessarily the man. I know a lot of people who liked the policies but wish Donald Trump didn't tweet or wish he didn't talk so much or wish he didn't have such a soft, uh, you know, uh, such a thin skin sometimes. But he basically, the only thing he is running on, 74 million Americans that supported Donald Trump are an enemy to the state. That's his messaging. That's not positive. That's not uplifting. Well, and and uh, Jonah Goldberg tweeted last night, and and I think this is the way a lot of people do feel is that you can you can not want Donald Trump to run again, like his policies, and think this speech was a bad idea. That's correct. You know, all of that can be true, and we've got to live back in a world where we have nuance to our conversations, and we we get around the table together. And I don't mean singing kumbaya. I mean understanding what real Americans think because real Americans and I don't mean that you're more patriotic than someone else I'm talking about the average person that's going out they're not paying that much attention to politics because they're working every day and they're figuring out how to get the kids to practice I mean heck I I FaceTimed with my kids yesterday and they were all at Cub Scout meetings and I had to apologize for interrupting it and and we'll talk to them again this weekend people have lives to lead and so the fact they're not down on every nuance in politics doesn't mean they're not good Americans, but it does mean they care a heck of a lot more about how your policies are going to affect their pocketbook than they do about all these things that we think they care about. Exactly. You know, one of the things I like to remind people of, you know, in school, one of our early ways of learning how to write an essay in middle school, high school is compare and contrast. Take away the politics of identity. Take away the people. Take away the Trump. Take away Biden. Look at where we were as a country at the end of the last presidency and look at what happened within the first few weeks. They decided to write one executive order after the other, completely reversing everything that we had before. So take the personalities out. Which 
policies were better for you, for your family, for the country. The ones we were under at the end of at the beginning of 2020 or where we are now. That's all you need to ask yourself. Absolutely. Alan Sanders, where can people hear you, listen, watch, whatever it is that you do? (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you this because I I am part of another station in Atlanta, but I will tell you, just do a Google for The Alan Sanders Show. I drop a digital show every single day. It's also available wherever you find podcasts. I also have a a blog page where I put all my show notes and a link to the uh, audio. If you want to go to freedomcocktail.com, those are the best ways. And then on social media, the Alan Sanders show, let's face it, everybody brands themselves by their identity. So that's what you look for and you'll find me. Absolutely. Thanks for being with me today. Martha, thanks so much for having me on. Take care. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. Rod Huey is here with me this morning. Good morning, Rod. Good morning. And join us, joining us on uh, the phone is Alicia Thomas Searcy, who is running as a Democrat for the state school superintendent. Alicia, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So, first of all, I always ask candidates this: What made you decide to run for state school superintendent? You know, it has to be God's calling because uh, as you heard uh, in the introduction, I hate politics. And as you know, Martha, I served in the General Assembly for 12 years uh, and then spent the last eight years of my life out of politics. And boy, did I enjoy it. Uh, because as I said, it's, it's divisive, it's ugly, people lie and all kinds of things. And the only people that get hurt are kids. Uh, but my passion for education and seeing what's happening in our state, especially even with the kids in my own household, uh, I decided that my passion and desire to make change is greater than my dislike for politics. And so as I made this decision literally two or three days before qualifying, my husband reminded me um, that as I do speeches and talk to people, um, we have to do the things that we are called to do. And so for me, it really is a calling. Uh, it's the perfect role for me in terms of my experiences, being a former legislator, um, serving as a superintendent before, and being a mom who's an, and a parent. Uh, my husband and I are navigating schools for three kids, and so it's deeply personal for me, uh, and it's something I just dedicated my life to doing. So what do you see as what's needed by a state school superintendent? There are a number of things that are needed. First and foremost, um, it's leadership. I don't think that we've had leadership in the last eight years in particular um, on some of the most pressing issues in education. Uh, First, for me, again, as a parent, um, I don't know a mom or dad Um, who wasn't afraid on May 25th, the day after Uvalde, to send our kids to school. Um, And as I tell the story, my 15-year-old who came home that day, you know, we sat at the kitchen table, my husband and I, you know, asking her how was the day, what are kids thinking? And she said something to me, Martha, that I will never forget. She said, you know, kids are talking about it, but we know nobody's going to do anything. Uh, And that hurt. And I feel like that's the issue with all kinds of things in education. Um, we're, we don't have a state school superintendent who is doing anything about school safety. That's first and foremost. Uh, we have teachers who are walking out the door. Um, they are absolutely burned out. Nothing is being done. 
Um, and so, you know, there are a number of things on the list that need to be addressed within the Department of Education, uh, within uh, our state in terms of a vision for public education. And so I think the role of the state school superintendent, first and foremost, is to be a champion for kids, a champion for our public education system, a champion for parents, um, and a champion for educators. And we just don't have that. And we just don't have time to wait another four years for that to happen. So, Alicia, with you taking over, we, it, let's say you get, you know, you, you, you win. What, what are you going to do to, you know, kind of address this right away? What is something that can be done to address it right away? The very first thing that I'm going to do, well, there are a number of things that I need to do, I think, in the first 30 days. One of them is uh, to take an audit of what's happening. Um, it's interesting the the number of current employees that I am hearing from who are deeply frustrated about programs that aren't being properly administered, um, funds that aren't being used well, et cetera. But I am most concerned, number one, about public uh, about school safety, and number two, um, teacher burnout. And so I want to create an office of the teacher advocate um, where we're not just doing a bunch of surveys, um, but we're listening to teachers and we are taking action. Um, we are working with the legislature. I'm a former state legislator. It's important to have those relationships to do something about teacher burnout. And so that could be a number of things. Um, it's certainly dealing with teacher pay. Um, I believe that the starting pay for teachers in Georgia needs to be $65,000 across the state. Doesn't matter what your zip code is. Um, I think that we've got to enact a couple of uh, bills. Uh, one that uh, requires teachers to have uninterrupted planning time every single day so that they can collaborate with other teachers and, and prepare for their students. Um, I also think that we need to put in place um, mental health days so that teachers can take time off and take care of themselves. That's so great. there are a number of things within this office that I would focus on to address the issues that teachers are facing head on immediately. Well, you know, though, and in fairness, complete disclosure, I'm, I serve on the State Board of Education now, and, you know, we are dealing with teacher retention. We just had a, a, a big a big panel of teachers and from all over the state, and our Teacher of the Year came up with a plan that was presented in our last board meeting about teacher retention, and and it is being implemented. So this is something they're aware of, something that they've been talking about and been working on. Um, also, on a, a lot of the things you're talking about, there'll be a tricky balance between um, what the legislature does uh, and what the Department of Education does and what the local school districts do because there's certain, you know, there's certain disconnects between the local school districts as well as the state board of education and the department of education. So, you know, how are you going to work within that framework? Because a lot of the things you're talking about are local control kind of things for the school systems, not necessarily at the department of education. So I want to slightly disagree, Martha. Um, I think a lot of these are legislative matters and they are state policy matters that, yes, will ultimately be implemented by school districts. Um, but I don't think in the last eight years that we've had the vision um, or the direction, the guidance that, that's been provided by the Department of Education. This is why my experience as a state legislator is so critical at this juncture. Uh, I don't know of a state superintendent in the last 20 years or more who has been a state legislator before. 
having those relationships, knowing how to navigate that process is critical. Uh, and when I was in the legislature, I actually passed education laws that required me to work with the Department of Education to promulgate those laws. I've also been a superintendent and been responsible for executing laws that have been passed at the state level. And so I will do exactly what I've done in the last uh, 20 years in politics, work across the aisles, build relationships, um, provide a vision um, and work directly with superintendents because I understand the job. I understand all of the many mandates that have been passed down um, that didn't make sense, but because I've been in all these roles, I understand what everybody's facing and I wanna be able to bring people together um, and make those things happen. Some of this is also about um, having a shared vision about what we want for our public education system. Uh, and I think if we had strong leadership, uh, we could bring people together, get some buy-in, um, invest in those resources that uh, teachers need, that districts need, um, and we can get things done on behalf of educators. So I, I appreciate you know, this local control piece um, but I think it's about relationships. It's about doing more than, you know, visiting a district and giving awards. Uh, it's about listening. It's about bringing people together. It's about understanding what everybody needs and being that resource so that you can serve them effectively. On the mental health piece, of course, you mentioned, which I think is really important um, because, you know, a lot of that, I mean, school can't control that, but school needs to have resources there um, that can help parents and families deal with these kinds of issues. Now, the bill 1013 was passed and signed into law, which is going to make some sweeping changes to how Georgia deals with mental health issues. What do you think needs to be done that's more? Another huge piece for me. We have to normalize mental health in our education system. And while our schools are not responsible um, for providing all of the services that students will need, we absolutely have to be a partner. One of the things that I love that um, Bibb County has done is they partner with mental health agencies within their community to provide mental health services for all of their schools in their district. That's what all of our districts need to do across the state. Um, you probably know this better than I do, but all of our districts have a surplus uh, because of CARES and ESSER funds. And so there are resources available for districts to uh, leverage those funds to provide mental health services. And I would say not just to students, but also to educators. The second piece of this is we need to really take a look at rewriting the job descriptions of our school counselors, of our social workers, and our school psychologists. Uh, many of them went to school and got into this work, uh, not because they want to deal with schedules um, or doing lunch duty, but they actually want to serve students. And so we have a critical opportunity now uh, to change the way we are doing business in schools when it comes to mental health. Because as we know, if, if babies are coming to school with all kinds of challenges, and we don't even, we can't even imagine what they've seen in the last two years uh, not having been in schools, we have to address their mental health first before we can even think about uh, driving student achievement in ways that we need to see. Absolutely. Alicia um, Thomas Searcy, if the people want to know more, how can they find out? I love that question, Martha. Um, we have a website, searcyforsuperintendent.com. We are also on social media, Thirsty for Superintendent on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. 
Uh, and while I uh, am talking about social media, one of the things that I'm also very excited about and passionate about uh, is that we have an opportunity to stop trying to deliver a telegram education to a TikTok generation. And so I want people to get involved. This isn't just a campaign. This is a movement. This isn't about Democrat or Republican. This is about what do we need to do for the children in this state, the three that live in my house and the 1.8 million students who deserve to have a state school superintendent who will do something. So I encourage people to email me, uh, info at com. visit our website, Follow us on social media, donate to the campaign, volunteer, but do what we must do, regardless of your party affiliation, because we've got work to do on behalf of our kids. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with me today. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.